Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to All Brother, a podcast about much musical institution, The Fall. Each week, me and Arcade the I along a guest to chat about their experiences and memories of the group. As you probably know by now, Steve was a member of The Fall for 20 years while I managed a poultry four and three quarters. You can find us at all the usual suspects, but we're hosted at play.acast.com forward slash s forward slash All Brother. Episode four of Series two sees us chatting to Steve Albini, legendary musician and producer, though he prefers the title recording engineer, who's worked with some amazing artists and also has the honour of being name-checked in a fall song. More on that in a bit. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the latest episode of the Old Brother podcast, a podcast about the fall, not the podcast about the fall, as Steve always likes to say. Uh, delighted this week to... Well, you, like to say for, you like to say for me. I do like to say, yes. All right, you don't like me saying it's the fall podcast. Let's put it that way, shall we? Yeah, so our guest this week, I'm delighted to say, is Mr. Steve Albini. Um I was going to say I was going to describe you as a producer, but we'll get onto that because I don't believe I believe you don't like being called a producer, record producer, musician, member of Big Black, of course, and Shellac. I could read out the list of bands that he's worked with, but that would take up the whole hour, so I won't yeah. do that. Uh, welcome, Steve. Nice to speak to you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, the, we, I mean, I, w- I was aware that you were a Fall fan, but the thing that prompted us to get in touch was you started tweeting Fall lyrics. A couple of weeks ago, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a Twitter meme going around where people would like list, you know, here are ten books to know me by, or here are ten yes, Beatles yeah, songs yeah. to know me by, that sort of thing, and uh, ten films, you know, ten anarchists, whatever. <laughs> and so I just did ten snippets of fall lyric, ten fall lyrics to know me by. Yeah. And uh, I just did it off the top of my head. So, I I mean, I ended up 
picking, you know, several from one song and then skip 20 years and do another song, that sort of thing. But uh, I just did it off the top of my head as a kind of a joke, but it's incredible how many incredible lines there are in fall songs, just like, you know, the the replies to that thread were just a, a people just piling in with little quips and snippets that they've been saying to themselves for 20 odd 30 odd years and it's incredible how many people have really sort of formed part of their personality based on these absurdist fall lyrics <laughs> you gotta be careful based on your personality on fall lyrics yeah i think so um here's a question for you did anybody quote any lines from 50 year old man that's the there's a Oh yeah, that was a that was a pretty regular gag there. Um. Yeah, well, because I, I think I'm unique amongst the three of us here. I don't actually get a mention in a fall lyric. I think you get a mention a few times, <laughs> don't yes. you? Yeah. What's your favourite? What's your favourite uh, fall lyric that has a go at you then, Steve? Is it uh, the quote well, of Doc Shanley? Is it? That's not my favourite. No. No. What's your favourite? <laughs> <laughs> What's the one about like, eating the chocolate? They're like your children, you know. You can't have <laughs> 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 a favourite. It's got to be the one about stop eating all that chocolate and start yeah, eating salad. That doesn't actually name me in person, but, you know, it's implied. <laughs> 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 so any any others about you? The League of Bulls... I was eating a bar of chocolate in the studio and then that Mark gave me and then he went upstairs to do the vocals and, and then says, stop eating all that chocolate, you're a half-wit. <laughs> <laughs> good times, good times. Man, what a setup. That's that's pretty a pretty harsh setup, though. Yeah. You like, here, hold this sign. You <laughs> yeah, you couldn't even have a bar of chocolate in peace in that band. <laughs> he, he, especially he, he, he gave it you. That's a big he grim. It. No, it's a, it was a setup. <laughs> oh, was it? I thought it was a Mars bar. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's a drummer there. So, um, Stephen, um, you're kind of contemporaneous musically with the Fall, aren't you? I think your first band was early '80s. Is that right, Big Black? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I discovered the fall right about the time I started playing uh, in bands in high school. Uh, I want to say '79. They right. had a there. There was a uh, there was a very brief period where the big record labels in America were sort of looking to the record labels overseas to see what the next trends were going to be, and they were you know sort of snapping people up at random. And so, like, the strangest assortment of bands were getting signed to an American deal who had an, some kind of, any kind of UK presence whatsoever. So, like, if a band appeared on the cover of the NME, then they would almost, cert- their their label could almost certainly get them licensed in America, you know. Yeah. Um, but the bands that were trying to make it um, typically were competing with a, a much bigger audience, whereas the bands that were sort of like underground figures, there wasn't anything like them in the big record label stables. And so like you'd have, I, I want to say that the fall were on A&M records in America. Like, That's right. I mean, I, I know I got their record at a normal regular record shop rather than a, like a, Secondhand shop or something. Yeah, I think I think IRS was distributed by A and M because I know yeah. there's there's a full lyric where Mark mentions meeting 
herb output. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that, that makes sense because I mean, in the same bin where there would have been like a police record, there would be a fall record and well, no one would buy the fall record and it would sit there for a very long time and eventually get marked down. And that's when I would buy it. Because <laughs> <laughs> there, there, so, there was a bit of a collection there, wasn't it, with Miles Copeland and... Yes. You, you, you ended up not supporting the police one night, didn't you, Steve? We did. We got a flat tyre on the way to Ith- Ithaca University from New York. Yeah. Turned up when the police... Yeah. Well, Miles Copeland basically ran step forward, didn't he? Yeah. The, the record label we were signed to in Britain. Oh, so I, was, I didn't know. I didn't. I knew. I didn't know that. I knew that that label existed, but I didn't know it was associated or affiliated with Miles Copeland. I knew yeah. he had like a. There was a management firm and a and a. And an eventually, agent. the record label. Yeah, Frontier Booking as well. Frontier Booking mm-hmm. Inter- Everything was police related, wasn't it? So there was IRS, Frontier Booking International, the police. There was another one as well, I think. <laughs> I don't know what that was, but yeah, but they they brought the fall over the first time. That will have been seventy nine, will it, Steve? It was. It was. Because so Live at the Witch Trials came out in America, but I don't think Dragnet did, did it? Uh, no, Dragnet I didn't see until I came to college um, in nineteen, the summer of nineteen eighty. Ah, in right. Chicago, there was a much bigger music scene, much more active music. I grew up in Montana, in yep. Missoula, Montana, which is a college town, so you know, marginally more sophisticated than the rest of Montana, but still Montana. <laughs> um, <laughs> and at the time, you know, there was no rapid exchange of information. There was no uh, no internet and no no way of getting a hold of things. But how, how did you get your music then? Well, being in a college town, the college towns always have secondhand record stores because people come to school with all their possessions. And then when they need weed money or whatever, they sell stuff. So the, the secondhand bookstores and secondhand record stores and, uh, you know, pawn shops in, in college towns are always extremely fertile. So that's where I found most of the records and most of the music that I listened to was in the secondhand record shops in town. And there were a couple of great ones. There's, there was one, Rockin' Rudy's, that became a real institution. It wasn't going when I was there, but it's, you know, it was eventually ended up being a sort of a massive amoeba size um, exchange for secondhand records. Um, but anyway, when, when I was there, the, the head shops often had record bins and the guitar shops had record bins and things like that. And so, so were people's fall records the first ones they sold? When they- <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't. Yeah, it was it was the sort of a, it was a, a weird kind of a. The, the 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 town I was in, Missoula, had a sort of a a tradition, a literary tradition, and a, you know a, a vague hint of lefty politics and that sort of thing. Um, all of it sort of associated with the university, and so there were people that sort of filtered through town, and um, so and some of them, you know left behind things of, of interest to people like me. So, Yeah, so they, they were being kind, really. They weren't just trying to bin off their fall records as soon as possible. They were leaving, <laughs> it, as a, leaving it as a cultural touchstone. Yeah. 
So, so, but I mean, I think I did, I think I did buy Live at the Witch Trials. Like, I think I, I, I did buy that at a, like just on a regular super, like regular mom and pop record store. I don't think that was at any of the oddball places, but it was definitely the weirdest record in the building at the time. The things that immediately gripped me about it were how sparse it was. Like all of the other records of the day, even the ones that were sort of feigning minimalism, like they were all heavily produced and they all had, you know, like when you'd hear somebody singing, it was never just him. It was always him plus a double of him plus a harmony of him. And, you know, this, there was always this like synthetic quality to the sound that you were hearing. It never sounded just like a band playing their music. And the fall record was one of the first records that I encountered where it just sounded like there were those four people playing and that was it, you know, and that made a huge impression on me. Like that, that became a kind of a, a benchmark for class, honestly, of, of a band. It was like, if they were, if they were afraid to just let you hear what they sounded like, then that told you something about them, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the better bands were happy to just be presented as they were, you know, because no makeup and everything. And that, that, that sort of made them instantly made, made them one of my favorite bands, like set them apart from everything else that was going on at the time. I don't know that I was really tuned into, you know, that there, that there was punk and that there was things different from punk that were sort of inspired by punk. You know, like, I don't think I had any of that um, background knowledge yet. I think I was just experiencing things on a, on a, on a raw level, like a, you know, the, the way a, a dog discovers a television set, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what other kind of music were you listening to at the time when you discovered the fall? Then? Um, I had become obsessed with the Ramones and the Ramones had a couple of albums at that point. Um, and, uh, let's see what else. Um, my brother had, left for college and when he left I sort of inherited his record collection and he had a bunch of like classic rock stuff like Alice Cooper uh, was he was really big on Alice Cooper he had a half a dozen Alice Cooper records um, The Who we had Tommy and uh, whatever the one with the obelisk is uh, who's next who's next Jim? Um, what else you know, that, that that might have been it of significance that I borrowed from my brother. Um, yeah, I got all my all my musical taste from my brother as well. It's not a good yeah. idea in, in my experience. <laughs> you, went, you end up very blinkered. If you... <laughs> and then, uh, you know, over time I started acquiring more and more things, like just you'd buy a record because the cover looked weird. Right, so the, the, the Witch Trials you had, was that the red cover? The uh, yeah, I, I remember there were two different ones. Yeah, two different covers. I want to say the the one that I had was sort of a a line drawing on on white. That's the that's the English version. Yeah, that's okay. Then no, then I didn't. That's not the one I had because I, I just had whatever the the one that I could get at the local store. You know, the American version, whatever that one was. Right. Because I I, I don't I don't know why they changed the cover. It was a, it's a bit of a weird cover that. Yeah, American Witch Trials, isn't it? And the other thing, the other thing that hit me first about that record was like every every other record, even like the Ramones records, were sparse and really brutal and and uh, 
you know, very plain in their production. And I, I, that's, I really admired that about them. I grew, grew to see that as a kind of a talisman as well. But the, but there were no, no mistakes on any of the Ramones records. Like they played everything properly, you know? Yeah. And I, um, I, I noticed straight away that the fall were okay. If things got out of whack a little, like there was a bad bass note or, you know, the, a stumble in the rhythm, whatever people get the idea. That's fine. Just carry on. Well, it's funny you should say that because I'm not so sure we ever had the idea that it was fine. That was always Mark would never let you go back. I mean, you know, as I mean, not that we were any, you know, but fantastic musicians but we weren't given the opportunity to go back even if we'd wanted to which in hindsight i think is a good thing but it was a little frustrating at the time sometimes yeah i I mean it definitely set the records apart like you know you'd hear a a really an obvious clam like something that you know was clearly a a mistake yeah and like literally nobody else on the planet making records would have said, okay, yeah, that's fine. And the fall said, yeah, okay, that's fine. You know? Yeah. There's one on, there's one on, I think it's into the last chorus on how I don't elastic man, where I don't go into the chorus at the right time. And it haunts me to this day. I can't listen listen to it without thinking he's fucked that up there every time. But I I, I take your point. I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a brave thing to do in a way. It's It's not like everybody else was doing it, is it? I remember uh, I remember reading an interview with Lou Reed one time <clears throat> where he said like the the he would do shows where he'd put a band together but they would have never rehearsed. And so like the first verse and chorus of the song he would have to be showing the band like with his hands on his guitar like how do you get from one chord to the next chord or whatever yeah teaching them the song on stage in front of a paying audience and and he was explaining that that you know like when you when you're showing the band and the audience how the music goes simultaneously it it really draws people in you know it really makes people aware of the effort that everybody has to yeah. put in to make it to make it go, it makes them part of the process. I'd never thought of it that way. It always just seemed, you know, lazy yeah. to me. It's a dangerous uh, game, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just you know, in the abstract, if you described it, it would seem like you were just just fucking around. You were like you were just lazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and but uh, and I'm I'm certain that that was a, an element of why Lou Reed would would do that with a pickup band or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then. Uh, I started to think about it like the, you know, there are big swaths of the process of being in a band, like the song writing, the song, like learning, go, getting the steps right, um, developing your sort of feel for the different parts of the song. And all of those things are normally hidden. And so when you're presented with something as a fi- finished product, uh, like the the decisions that were made along the way are sort of hidden from you. And I liked the idea that I was getting to see something, you know, getting to see the seams in the thing I was, I was, that had been made. And I thought yeah. that was, that was an interesting parallel to the, to this. Uh, I mean, you could call it sloppiness, but it's not sloppiness. It's intentional, you know, the intentional, yes. um, like sort of, cavalier approach about formalism i think that that's that's an uh, a good way to put it yeah i think i think that worked in the fall a lot of the time because it was just mark i think if you'd have had the drummer and the bass player and the guitarist all 
being deliberately, you know, not and it, right. celebrating mistakes. Then I think you get to get to the point where it gets a bit unlistenable. But because it was people fighting against Mark fighting against that, and I think it kind of works a lot of the time. To have one person with the vision rather than the whole band trying to make it up to go along. Yeah. I mean, there's a. Uh, I, I read the. I devoured, I should say, the, the Big Midweek. I thought it was an incredible journal about just an incredible articulation of what's valuable about being in a band and how great it is to be in a band. I thought that was, it, it was really masterful in that way. Not always great, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> and the, the, uh, the sort of day to day depictions of behavior within the band were fascinating to me. Like, uh, um, from the outside, you'd get the impression that, uh, Marky Smith basically, didn't give a fuck what anybody else wanted to do with their lives. He had a plan that everybody else was expected to go along with, you know, mm-hmm. was there ever, <laughs> was, did the band ever behave more like, you know, um, a garage band where everybody sort of has their say and gets their thing? Or was it always, uh, as Mark described it, you know, me and your granny on bongos, and it's a fall. No. It's the fall, you know. No, it wasn't. It really wasn't. It, that, that I mean, that was one of the reasons for writing that book was to try and show everybody else's contribution, and and that it wasn't just Mark and anybody could get behind him. There were some incredibly talented people worked in that band when I was in it. Well, they all, you know, they pretty much all were. And they all contributed and they all, it wasn't like, you know, you see, like, I don't know, I may have said this before, but uh, you see a song that, like, no, if you listen to, like, a Noel Gallagher demo right, that he presents to the band, that song he's finished and it's exact, and then when they play it, it's exactly like he's written it. But it wasn't like that in the fall at all. Everybody brought their own thing to it. Yeah, but and the was there ever was anything ever done that Mark wasn't into? Like, was there anything where the band got their way? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm sure there was. I'm sure there was. <laughs> what do you think, Paul? Um, I think. I mean, he was quite broad with his acceptance of it. I think he used to say to me, "As long as I, you know, as long as I can find something in into." In the music to sing over, well, I'm I'm happy with that. I, yeah, I don't I don't think there was ever anything was I don't think there was any ever anything that went out that he actively disliked. Right. No. I mean, he might have come to dislike it later on because he was a, <laughs> he was a, he was a bit of a revisionist, wasn't he? Or he could be at yes. times. He, what he said, you know, about an album at the time it came out might not be what he thought about it two years later. I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody's the way that way to a set, but I don't. I think he he had the he had the kind of the final say. No, it was the greatest album. It was the greatest album we have, we've ever done when it came out. Yeah, <laughs> and then a year later, maybe not so much. But yeah, I mean, he he was the kind of arbiter of it, wasn't he? I mean, that was the, yeah. that was how it worked. I mean, it that, that's it's like that thing where we were saying about mistakes. You would we would record music, and then it'd be his then. So he'd go back right, to his, okay. his vocals, yeah. but you know, it was it was you kind of handed it over to him, and then you know, and, and I don't be, think it would. It didn't even get off if he didn't like it. it. Didn't get off the ground, did it? Right. 
we did it wasn't like we'd do we'd work on a song and then he decide at the end of it when it was all finished that he didn't like it if it if it if he didn't like it, he'd tell you straight away. But do, do you think any of that was just because it had been done without him there and he, he had to say that? Because I know that happened with the, the last line-up where they, they went to Germany to record and Mark came in after they recorded a lot of stuff and said, I don't like any of that, which must have been a little frustrating, I think. But yeah. but did he say that because he hadn't been involved or did he genuinely not like it? I mean, I don't suppose we'll ever know, will we? We'll never know. I don't know. But I just remember that, you know, we'd have the songwriting sessions and... <laughs> People would bring two or three ideas, like Craig or and me, or mm-hmm. whoever, you know, and you would be lucky to get one passed. So, so the musical ideas were were essentially all generated by the band. I'd say ninety percent of them in my yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he, he'd come up with the odd musical idea, but most of it was generated by the band. Yeah, but like you say, it's like it's. He would, Mark always maintained that he wrote Totally Wired in its entirety, but he basically said it goes du-du-du-du-du and I want you to sound like a cardboard box. <laughs> that, that was him writing the song. His main instruction for the drums was I want them to sound like a cardboard box, which that's he would count as writing a song because he, he didn't have, I mean, I'm not saying he should, he didn't have any musical language. Yeah. He, couldn't, he couldn't articulate what he wanted musically in any way that was... You know, personable, yeah. So in the end, it had to be you because you know it was just everybody doing everything they could do, really. Because it wasn't like certainly when certainly when I was in the band, and I think a lot long after, it wasn't like Mark says he wants a reggae one, and everybody knew how to play reggae really well. People just played the way <laughs> they they knew how to play. I think I think that was that's something. You know, there was a level of musicianship that. Everything was authentic because it was the only way we knew how to play. I think. I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. that's. I, I'm. Uh, I know this. That I know that I'm the guest, and and conventionally the the guest is the one that gets asked questions by the hosts. <laughs> but uh, I've been a Fall fan my whole life, and so and this is an opportunity for me to get some questions answered. Yeah, so, yeah. Carry on. Yeah, mind. carry on. <laughs> like you. You you uh, mentioned uh, how I wrote Elastic Man yeah. previously, and there's a hot debate about whether or not Mark ever says the word elastic in the song, or if it's if he's always saying the word plastic. Plastic, yeah. It's always song. plastic, yeah. Yeah, he was worried about. Uh, he worried about the copyright somehow. There was because I, I know how that song. Uh, uh, there was a conversation between Mark and Grant Showbiz. And Grant was telling him about the Plastic Man comics. I don't know if you've ever read any of the Plastic Man comics from the 70s. I've seen them. I haven't. They are absolutely bonkers. And and Grant was saying, I I cannot fathom, even begin to understand how he writes this comic, which was, I think, where they got the idea. But like you say, I think he changed it from Plastic Man to Elastic Man because he thought it was copyright Plastic Man. But if I'm not mistaken, I think there's an Elastic Man as well. There's an Elastic Man in as well. (laughs) (laughs) It probably is. If there isn't, somebody should have come up with that. But, I mean, I know people have said it's like a comment on because the lyrics about how 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 he creates, you know, and how the guy creates stuff. And yeah, he, he changed it because of that. But I, I don't know. I mean, like with anything else with Mark Lennox, there's he, there's five or six explanations, and any one of them could be true at any moment in time. But as far, um, I'm pretty sure he never says "Elastic Man" at any point in the song. <laughs> well, that's it's charming because when you're listening to it, having read the title, 
it sounds convincingly like he's saying some variation of Elastic Man, but it, you know, he said, you can tell he says plastic now and again, but it, it sounds also like he's trying to make a point out of saying the word elastic as though it sounds like plastic. Yeah. Well, he, do, he does that, doesn't he? He does that thing where you sort of get mit dem and victim and you... Yeah, is he, has he changed that? Is he and you know you get homonyms or not quite homonyms, and I think he that was one of the tools he used. I think where he get two words that sounded a bit like each other but meant something different. So was the like was the band scene when the fall were most active, like in the let's say the late seventies, early eighties period, where they were sort of like a, a band, one of the one of the bands on the scene, as opposed to being this sort of a a cottage industry on their own. Like what was their social relationship with the other bands on the scene? Like did other bands, did you guys hang out with other bands? Did you have like band buddies that you did shows with? Did, did you like have like a favorite crowd that you were part of? I'm going to say not really the odd band, but, uh, I don't know, it's kind of frowned upon in the fall, wasn't it, Paul, I think? I think Mark liked to keep... I mean, as much as was physically possible, Mark liked to think yeah. or that we were, that the fall were different. He didn't like to see... Uh, but it was impossible, because the scene in Manchester then, it was quite parochial, because everybody used the same PA company, for instance. So as much as Mark wanted to keep it at arm's length, it, it wasn't really possible, because there was a time when... Buzzcocks, Joy Division slash New Order, The Fall, and every other Manchester band you've ever have all rehearsed in the same building and all used the same PA company. Yeah, so your paths had to cross, didn't they? But uh, the, the, the thing, he, he did frown upon that thing of hanging out with band with the musicians, didn't he, and hanging out. There was a, a few, Echo and the Bunnymen. And... Yeah, but didn't that stop when they became a band? Hmm. A young round with Ian McCulloch and Julian Culp and what have you before they were in the ball. That I suppose, yeah. There was a there was that uh, live compilation album that the Fall appeared on that also had uh, Joy Division and the Buzzcocks. It was all the Manchester bands. Uh, uh, um, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it right now. Yeah, yeah live at the Electric Circus. Yeah, oh. it was the Electric Circus live record and that sort of implies a sense of community around that place did you guys feel that at the time or was that just like the it was just a gig <laughs> well we only went the last night when the, the only time we ever went was when it was, was those last two nights when it was closing down was i didn't go i was so young but the, there was there was definitely you can hear that in like pete shelley's little speech at the end that he sort of says this, you know, if we get anywhere else in Manchester, let's make it better than this place was. Well, I think it was kind of a talent yeah. because the next thing was the factory was the other kind of. Yeah. And Mark, whatever Mark said about, you know, he, he went there a fair bit to the factory. Yeah. And we played played it lots. And yeah, and there was a. There was always a connection, wasn't there? Between... There was. Mark, Mark liked to think that he was different from other musicians. And he liked to think the fall were different from other bands. I'm not so sure. You know, you're always you know, as a, if you're a drummer in a band, you're going to have more in common with a drummer in a band than someone who goes to watch sure. you in a band. But he didn't. I don't think Mark liked that, and I don't think I don't think he liked. I mean, with, with with some justification, I think I'm not sure he liked how musicians were with each other in some way. They get it gets a bit. Do you know what I mean? It gets a bit cosy, doesn't it? And a bit sort of aren't we outrageous together? Kind of. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I can see being critical of that as a personality, but I also feel like that's one of the principal joys of being in a band is that you have this shared experience with other yeah. people that have been in bands. And it's sort of like having been in a foxhole, you have this experience that only people who've been in a foxhole can, that's right. can really yeah. correlate with. And there's a there's this kind of a brotherhood of, of people who've been through it Mm. where you run into somebody who was in a band, an underground band in Zagreb, and a guy who was in an underground band in Tasmania, and they have exactly the same stories about That's breaking right. a string That's and right. not having a spare or whatever. You know, it's yeah. just... Yeah. I, 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 I find that to be one of the best parts of being involved in music, is that you have this language that other people on the outside, that the squares don't have, you know? Yeah, it's also one of the joys of the great of music, some great music books where you think it's exactly the same. I thought we were different, and it's exactly the same. Same, the same bullshit went on in every band. There's a there's a kind of a cliche at the moment where the the Beatles film Get Back is comes up in every conversation when someone. Uh, like uh, people of a certain age who have a reverence for the Beatles where, you know, like clockwork sooner or later, somebody says, have you seen that film? Get back. It's about the Beatles. <laughs> and then they start going on and on about how they're just like regular people. And if you've ever been in a band, it's just like that. And, and yeah, I mean, I haven't seen get back yet, but because everyone else I know has seen get back and told me things about it, I kind of feel like I have seen it. You know? Yeah. Uh, all, all, all I'll add to that is, is absolutely. I'm sure you will absolutely love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, it's right. You know, it's obvious. It's made for me. It's exactly yeah. the kind of thing that I would love. So I'm sure I'm going to, you know, nerdy recording studio stuff. You know, bands inside baseball. I'm being in the, in the Beatles. Like that's of course that appeals to me, and I'm I'm going to watch it eventually. But there's this thing in America where it's only available on this one subscription service. Yeah. And I just, I just hate the idea that you have to buy a new thing, a new subscription to something to watch one fucking movie that just, <laughs> well, you see, if you were into the Marvel cinematic universe, you'd already have it because they're all on there as well. So that's why I've got it. Yeah. I mean, for over here, it's mostly kids. Like if you have kids, you, you have that service because it has all the like cartoon stuff. Yeah. So if you have kids, you have that network, and then if you if you have kids, that implies that you're a dad of some kind. You, you know, even <laughs> if you're a mom, you're a dad, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, and dads all love the Beatles, and so it's like per, it was really brilliant marketing on their part to like mm-hmm. find the most the the channel most likely to be uh, already paid for by dads, and then. Uh, put that on there and then also there would be some dads that didn't that that didn't buckle to their children's pressure yet to get the disney thing <laughs> and they put the beatles thing on there and the, and then now dads oh, yeah. are like oh, okay 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 we're going to get the disney thing <laughs> yeah, but you, you know you're going to do it you can talk, talk like this all day but you're going to get it you are going to uh, watch I, it Sooner or later, they're going to be like cracked bootlegs of it floating around, and I'll pro- I'll get to watch it in the sort of subversive manner that I that I think well, is well, I, I would I would urge you to get if you can watch the rooftop concert in the 
crystal clarity that is available now it's just it's just a joy that the last the last sort of, I think it's like the last 50 minutes of episode 3 of the rooftop concert and it's just probably one of the best things about a band I've ever seen it because it cuts down it's got the you know you've got all the the Beatles on the roof and then it cuts down to the people on the ground below and as much as it does in let it be but there's just more of that and it's just brilliant it is just fantastic i can't i cannot eulogize enough about it you've just get backed me we were having a conversation about how i've been getting get backed in every conversation and then you just get back me i have sorry. i do apologize yes I, I tell you what we need to get back to the fall now don't we hey did you see what i did, did, yeah. What I did? yeah, so, yeah. Any, any other burning questions steve that have been bothering you since 1981 uh, what kind of strings steve used or yeah. <laughs> um no i mean there was a there was a period there where the fall had two drummers and um i was always curious if that was an overt reference to the glitter band or if that was like a if there was a um there was a micro trend there for a while of a few bands having two drummers and most of the time the two drummers were just sort of chugging along playing the same thing and there didn't really seem to be much of a point to it except that it was a kind of a live double tracking but with the fall it seemed like it was way less structured than that it seemed like it was more haphazard and i kind of liked that well it was i think there was a bit of both really with the way that was me that was me and carl the the way we kind of approached it was like a rhythm guitarist and a lead guitarist. So some of the time you'd both be playing rhythm guitar, and then some of the time one of you'd be playing lead. More, more often than not, Carl, just because he was possibly, or still is possibly, one of the greatest drummers I've ever heard in my life. So um, yeah. so a lot of the time that was how we worked it. So you'd have the rhythm guitar bits, and you'd also have the lead guitar bits as well. Because, I mean, I think it was... The reason it came about wasn't... Did you talk about it then? Yeah, we did. Yeah? Because it was done for convenience sake, I think, rather than any anybody having any grand idea of Just what we're going to do. Just to make sure that there would always be at least one drummer on yeah. the day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one spare. <laughs> That's the, I mean, without being too flip, that was what it was. They went to America and I couldn't go for various reasons, so they had Carl. And then I think it suited Mark to have two about because Carl was kind of his Carl was kind of his mate. So he, there was a it was getting to the point where there was kind of two camps really. There was Mark and Kay, and then me, Steve, Mark and Craig were like a little gang within a gang, and it kind of suited Mark to have Carl as the goal between the two. If you look at it politically, but I mean, there's all, there's lots of ways of looking at it. There's musically, politically, and everything else. Yeah. But what what I'm, all, I'm always very gratified is that. What for whatever reason it was thrust upon me and Carl, I think we kind of made it work, you know. Yeah, I mean it was it was engaging. It you know there there was a thing about it that was that sort of separated the different eras, you know, like there are the the different the the very specific eras of the fall, and that was one of them, you know. Yeah, and then but uh, and then because obviously then it, the one after that was the kind of this nation saving grace era, which was different again, wasn't it? So what, what would you say was your? Do you have you followed the fall through every era? What would you say would not religiously? Like I was introduced to the fall in the in the you know Mark one, and uh, and the Mark one fall. I just did a, I just did a Marky Smith to you there where I said Mach one and then Mark one. <laughs> so I've just get back to you on Marky Smith lyrics there. But anyway, the uh, 
the Mark One version was the sort of the crudest or the simplest version, and that carried on for a while. Uh, in my mind, at least, I don't know what the st- lineup changes might have been, but all the stuff up through probably through s- the Slate's record. Yeah. Um, uh, I. I remember buying the Hex Induction Hour record and playing that quite a lot. And then I kind of didn't pay attention for a year or two. And then um, when the I'm Curious Orange project came around, that really, I thought that was a like a remarkable restart for the band. Like a, it seemed like there was a, a, a big jump up in, in intensity there. Which that was one of the, because that, that was, was one of you know, periods, Steve, wasn't it? I think. Sorry. Say that again. I'm saying to Steve. I think that was one of Steve's favorite periods. That was one of my favorite times in it. Yeah, doing that ballet with the yeah and the band at the time. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it seemed it's weird because you know I'd heard you hear heard about it as a project, like oh they're going to do this ballet, uh, or uh, and then the, you would expect the music to be like less lyrical and more kind of functional music, you know, mm-hmm. like music that somebody could put a dance to. And it ended up being just like, you know, a, a really invigorating version of the fall. So, yeah, that was a, that was probably the next period that I was that I, where I started paying attention again in earnest. So that would have been so that what year was that then, Steve? Ninety oh, eighty nine, right? Yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. I know that. I mean, there there was the period where um, uh, Brick Smith joined the band, and she was originally from Chicago, and she had a lot of connections mm-hmm. to Chicago. I I didn't know her from here, and I didn't know most of the people that were like part of her circle were frankly of an older generation uh, than me and my peers around here. So I didn't have any social connection to the band at that point. Uh, but there was a, it was, it was kind of curious here. It, I mean, like it, f- from what I knew about, about bricks through word of mouth, it, it was a surprise to everybody that she ended up in something of an artistic endeavor like that. You know? It was a to us as well. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, right, so that, then what about after that? Did you did you stay with the band or did you kind of lose touch then? I kind of stopped paying attention and then every now and again somebody would say, there's a new fall record out and I'd say, I believe you, you know. <laughs> and then... Um, <laughs> like much much later on, we, uh, I'm I'm friend I'm I don't, well, I don't I don't know if it's rude to say that we're friends, but I'm uh, I'm cordial with. Um, what a, uh, what a great word, <laughs> cordial. Luke Haynes from the Auteurs. Oh, I've yeah, done a record right. with the Auteurs. Yeah. Luke Haynes is like a massive Fall fan. Like he's a, you know he would follow them through to a, through a swamp and. I remember him telling me at some point uh, the 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 fall are particularly interesting right now because they're you know they're a particular kind of shambles, and so then I would tune in now and again. And um, during one of those phases, he uh, he'd sort of alerted me to a particularly 
chaotic stretch of the fall, and we were offered the opportunity to um, curate one of the All Tomorrow's Parties festivals. And so we invited the fall to play, and um, Barry Hogan, who was the principal of the ATP concerts and the ATP festival, um, said, uh, you know, I hope you realize what you're getting yourself in for here because it's going to be a miserable experience working with Marky Smith. Watching the fall on stage can be amazing, but working with Marky Smith is going to be torture. And I said, well, you know, that's what you're that's what you're for. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was 2002, was it? Yeah, I'll believe you on that. I don't. I'm terrible with dates. Yeah, so. because I think that kind of period, like Steve left in '98, and then yeah. that period, those kind of four or five years were a bit grim. I think. I think in it, terms it, it of. It'd take him a while to get it back together, didn't it? I think the um, yeah. the the particular mode was that it seemed like he was he would be nonstop fighting with the band on stage, like just sort of yanking the controls on people's equipment around, and you know pushing people to the side of the stage and shutting people off, shutting an amplifier off entirely, like that sort of thing. It seemed quite belligerent, and like it seemed like he was. Not making a show of of it, but almost like that was the the last remaining element of his control was that he could get angry at the band, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, and how did it go on the night? Uh, it it seemed like a seemed like a pretty regular fall gig, as near as I could tell. I don't remember there being any real outbursts. I don't remember anything. He right. he was complaining about the surroundings. Just be, I mean, it was a it, it was in a kind of a tacky holiday camp type deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think he sort of harbored longstanding misgivings about that part of English culture. And yeah. um, <clears throat> but uh, the gig I thought was great. You know, the only other like sort of intervening experience I had was I had uh, a, f- a friend who worked for Matador Records, who were um, in the '90s. I think were where Fall ended up as a label in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, we did. That was just when, just before I left. Yeah, we were on Matador. Yeah, uh, and uh, there was a video had been commissioned for one of their songs that apparently that was part of the deal. Like you have to do a video for us, you know. And I know the guy that was responsible for directing the video had developed. He worked out a kind of a a ploy to get Marky Smith, who didn't want to cooperate on any level. Although he insisted that this video be made, he didn't want to cooperate with the making of it. If it and um, that that's a kind of a recalcitrance that is probably familiar to you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and this friend of mine um, came up with the idea that he would have him read the, read over the text of the of the lyrics that he'd transcribed while he was getting dressed in front of a mirror like his his thought was he would play to marky smith's vanity of wanting to look good on camera right so he would have him dress up he would have him like straighten his tie and make sure that his hair was good and all that sort of stuff in front of a mirror while he was perusing these lyrics to make sure that they were correct and while he was doing that he was reading over the lyrics aloud 
And that's when they got all of the footage that they used for him to synchronize with the lyrics and the song in the video. That's a pretty good idea, that. Yeah. I wonder what song it was. Sounds like a good video, that. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the on which song it was, but the director's name was was David Clyler, and he he carried on making videos for bands on the West Coast, and he had a, a film company out there and did some independent productions and stuff. But I thought that was a really clever. Yeah. It was like it was sneaky and kind of underhanded, but under certain circumstances. You know, it seems like that's the only way to get any kind of cooperation out of some people. Yeah, but I mean, Mark, you know, it's again, it's there's a, there's a something of an artifice in that I think where he knows he's got to make a video, and part of his shtick is to complain about it. But he's, you know, I mean, he's enough of a professional, I think, Mark. He probably played up to it a bit, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the thing that's strange is that like his. His demeanor was always like pretty disheveled and kind of unkempt and not not show business at all. But you kind of get the impression just from the the references that he makes and the way that he that he sort of keeps hitting the boards that he has a kind of a, a reverence for show business. Like he thinks show business is an honorable profession. He yeah. he just sort of yeah. feels demeaned by having to do it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, I think he thought again. It's, it's, it's. I think he thought he approached it differently. He approached it as a as a job of work in a in a way, and he expected people to do the same. You know, whether he was true to that at all times is a different matter. But I think for much of his career, he, he was he, he was pretty professional. I mean, you can't. I mean, I know there was certain periods, probably the one you're talking about up until 2002 being one of them, where things got a bit grim. But you can't run a band for 40-odd years without knowing what's what, can you? Yeah, one way or another, you have to, you know, the the trains have to be on time to a degree, you know? Yeah, but, yeah, again, I I think, and it's I don't think it's quite the most pleasant position to be in. I think Steve got suckered into it a few times, where you become the thing that he can... React against. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that sort of personalizing of it is probably the most uncomfortable part of it, especially if in the back of your mind you're thinking to yourself, well, this isn't real. You know, yeah. this isn't a real argument we're having. This is an argument pro forma so that he can have had his argument with the band today, you know. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, but, of course, the obverse of that is the last sort of 10, 10 probably more than 10 years of the fall, weren't really like that, I don't think. I think it kind of, he got to a point where it, it was like a professional kind of outfit, wasn't it? And you can hear it in the music. I thought, I think the last period of the fall is one of the best periods there is, I think. For, and I'm always astounded, and we've had this conversation numerous times, how he pulled that back to the degree he did, to where the fall were by, you know, yeah. by the latter days of the fall. It's, it's an amazing achievement. Because I don't care who they are, most bands you go and see in their... 35th year of existence aren't pulling off what the fall could pull off, I don't think, at 35 years. Well, that's fair. I, ho- I hope to find out. I have a, a few more <laughs> a few yeah. more years with shellac. Well, I, would, I, would, I would urge you to listen to it because yeah. it becomes it becomes a bit of a cliche, doesn't it, that whole thing? But I don't I think he I think he probably got tired of that cliche and thought, I'm not doing this, I'm gonna, you know, I'll prove it I can do it. And he did it, you know. And I have nothing but admiration for the last years of the fall. When you so finish, when, when you finish watching Get Back, you can. <laughs> so the the other thing I was going to ask you, Steve, is did 
how close did you ever get to working with the Fall? And I've seen a couple of interviews where Mark's made sort of a bleak reference to you producing. Not in, not I have to say, not in the most positive of terminology. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I'll admit that I was a, I was ignorant of any interest on their part, and I'm as a as a habit, I don't make overtures to bands that I would want to work with. I just, I think it, it puts people in an awkward situation if they're being, you know, like if someone is coming to them like a suitor, you know, that, right. And, mm. So I, I, you, I just don't just do that. I, like I, I would never, I would never make an approach in that way to anybody. Of course I would have been interested in, uh, of course I would have been scared to death to, to do a record with the fall. Um, but uh, it it never came up to any really, that I w- ever took notice of. Like no one ever called me and said, "Hey, would you be into working with the Fall if I can talk them into it?" And no one ever said to me, uh, "Would you like me to approach the Fall about working with you?" Like n- none of that ever happened. So I don't know where those ideas came from, but they didn't come from me. Right. Right. Because there's a there's a quote from Mark saying that you wanted to do the new LP, so it. I mean, I know that's kind of the thing, the kind of thing he said from time to time, but that must have come from somewhere, presumably. Or someone must have mentioned yeah, your name. I mean, yeah, it came from him. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, I, I and before we forget, let's not forget, you are mentioned by name in 50-Year-Old Man. So yeah. well, he says, if I'm quoting the lyric correctly, uh, don't forget you tried to destroy me, Steve Albini. You're in collusion with the trains. Don't try and kid me. So, yeah, I don't are, actually, we, are you in collusion with the trains? Is be the first question. Yeah, no, uh, no overt collusion on my part. Uh, I, have a, I have a theory. I have a theory about that, and my theory is that he was waiting for a train one time and had a miserable time while somebody else was bending his ear about me. That's what I think it was. <laughs> because that, because I've had some real punishers bend my ear about me to me. And uh, <laughs> so I, I think it's, I think what's most, what's most likely or the, a, or a scenario that plays itself out in my mind that is credible is that he was waiting for a train and there was some punisher who wanted to, tell him that Steve Albini should do their records or some, you know, and that, and then he indulged that Punisher for as long as he had to, and maybe missed his train and whatever, <laughs> it burned a hole in his soul that he had to hear about me for five minutes. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> there, eh? Yeah. And then he got on the train, then he read a magazine about Pete Tong and then he wrote another song. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. What song's that? That's the, that's it, Doctor, is it Dr. Butler's Lair? That's the one about, one about Pete Tong as well. That was on a train. I don't think he had a particularly good time on trains. Did he? <laughs> no, uh, that's one of the amazing, the things that amazed me about England when I first started going to England in the, the mid-80s was um, how reliant everybody was on trains. Like in the States, when somebody says they're, they're getting a train, what they mean is they're getting a subway or like a, a local yeah. The, the equivalent of the tube that, you know, whatever the local, the L train in Chicago, for example, or the Metro yeah. train, which is a suburban train. But very, very, very rarely do people take a train from one city to another. That's just, it's super rare over here in the States. But it it kind of blew my mind how reliant everyone in the in England was on trains. Like you people, you would take your train to go visit your folks in your hometown or whatever. And uh, I, I found that whole train culture uh, just 
really fascinating, just uh, like the, the way it had developed through the modern era as though cars and airplanes didn't exist, you know? Yeah. Well, there, there was a, there's a big public transport um, culture in England anyway. That, that buses are a big thing here as well, which I yeah. don't think they are so much in the US, are they? Maybe I have in the to say, centers, when, possibly. when I've been in England... Um, using public transportation is an order of magnitude easier and more satisfying than it is here in the States. Like the tube, I think, is an absolute marvel. Like the London tube is an absolute incredible engineering feat. And the, the as a, a way of organizing people and traveling within a city, I think it's just fantastic. You can yeah. always get from anywhere to anywhere. It's amazing. Yeah, you can't and get lost, nothing. can you? And there's nothing even remotely that comprehensive in any part of the U.S. You know, the New York subway is reasonable. The Chicago L trains are reasonable, but they're nowhere near as comprehensive or as, you know, well integrated into society as the tube is over there. I could get on my high horse about it. Oh, it's got to be it's got to be run publicly for the benefit yeah. of the passengers rather rather than for profit, but which mm. has been systematically undermined. Over the, but anyway, I'm not going to get too political about it. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's the difference. Is that there's a there's a kind of it's a bit like the post in England or the health yeah. where it's done for the public good rather than for profit. You know. Yeah, and those institutions are sort of looked on in, in the states as being the, as kind of being the the venue of last resort. Like you know, yes, right. he, he, people only send things by mail if they can't think of any other way to get them there. And <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm I'm sort of on the outside in that. And like I love the U.S. Postal Service. I love the fact that you can that a man will come to your door and take anything you want to give him and bring it to anybody else anywhere in the country, even Alaska. You know, you know, for less than the cost of a candy bar. I think that's an incredible thing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I, this, this isn't where I thought the conversation would turn. No. But, uh, it's it, it's that it's that thing about it's not the last resort. Public transport, health, uh, you know, public funded health, public funded post is not seen as a last resort thing in in the UK. It's seen as the first resort yes, for all yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, for the um, moment, until until Johnson's finished having his way, then it won't be. But there you go. I do also like the there there are the sort of institutional accommodations for all of the like the fact that none of your streets are squ- straight and square, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like the town. I like the fact that every every town has one of those A to Z books where where you can look up where you are in the in the book and find out how to get from there to anywhere else. You know, the uh, and there there really isn't anything comprehensive like that for a a foot traveler in the U.S. Like there there were these big and unwieldy road atlases that you could get, but Mm. there was nothing small and convenient that you could just carry with you in your pocket to make sure you never got lost no matter where you were. I, I, I thought that was an amazing uh, accommodation and a really brilliant way to organize things. You can't walk anywhere in America, can you? I mean, well, no. you, I mean, you can, but it's rough. Yeah. Yeah. The, what about if you put some footpaths in here? Would that be well? Because I, I the firm I worked for was in Detroit. Well, it wasn't actually in Southfield, outside of Detroit. And the, the the concept of walking anywhere is just laughable. You couldn't, you know, yeah. there wasn't there wasn't the 
thing to walk on without, you know, well, it's just over there. It's it's 10 minutes walk where you've got to cross 18 lanes of highway to do it. You're not going to do right, it. Right, right, right. Well, I didn't think we'd get quite so much into the transport systems of our respective countries. <laughs> no. It was, nevertheless, it was an absolute pleasure. So I think we're about our, our hours is up, Stephen, and it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And I'm really? most, most grateful that you were willing to come on. Well, thank you. I, uh, as you know, as a um, devout fall fan, it, it's a pleasure speaking to you, and uh, I'm, no. you know, I. Well, that, that was the other thing. I, Mark Riley has often said he thinks you should remix Live at the Witch Trials. He doesn't. He's never been happy with the production. So if you fancy taking that, <laughs> on. there you go. Uh, you know, you I, go. I, I never turn down paying work. So. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay, Steve. Great to speak to you. Well, thanks for having me. No, you're very welcome. And we'll speak to you again soon, hopefully, if you're ever in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to give me a tinkle if you're ever in Chicago. I shall indeed. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Good to speak to you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Old Brother. Episode 5 should be with you in two weeks, all being well. Please follow us on Twitter. At Old Brother Show, at Hanley PA, and at Stephen Hanley Sick with a PH. You can subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, or RSS, so you'll never have to miss an episode. For further homework, you might be interested in our books, The Big Midweek and Have a Bleeding Gap, both available from Root Publishers. Hope to see you all again soon, and remember if you're driving, take your car. Ta la. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.